May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. The readings this morning from the Old Testament and from the Gospel are like mirrors of one another. They're so full of so many references, the same stuff, that they seem to be having a conversation and speaking to one another in ways that the pairs of readings don't always do. The mountain, six days, 40 days, the cloud, the light, and God's glory. All of these things appear both in the story from Deuteronomy and also in the story from the Gospel of Matthew. And it's an indication to us that scripture is a rich, deep, complicated text. And so to begin with, I'm gonna encourage you to do what Chris has invited you to do the last couple of weeks, which is take the bulletin home with you and keep reading it throughout the week and see what other allusions and meanings drift up to the surface as you compare these two texts. For my part, I'd like to offer a couple of observations about them. The first is that I think that the story of Jesus and his disciples going up the mountain and Jesus appearing with Moses and Elijah reveals to us the consistency of God's purposes for us. Those three figures, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, resonate deeply within our tradition, and they each stand for something important for us to recognize. But each in his own way is a revelation of God, the consistency of God's purposes for us. Moses represents the law. He's the lawgiver. And when he climbs Mount Sinai to be in the cloud of God's glory, it's to receive the law and give the law to the people. And the law is God's gift to us so that each of us is not individually responsible for figuring out what is the way that leads to life. What, is the, what are the things to do that keep us in right relationship with God? God gives us the law as a gift to guide us. Elijah represents the prophets. Unlike some of the other major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah among them, Elijah does not have his own book in the Old Testament. His story is featured in the books of, called Kings, but in Jewish tradition, and by extension for us, Elijah is kind of the king of the prophets. Elijah never died. He was carried up into heaven on a flaming chariot. And the legend has it that in Jewish tradition, he will return to signal the coming of the Messiah. He's the primary prophetic figure in the Old Testament tradition. And the prophets are God's gift to us to correct us when we forget the law and when we forget our relationship with God, when we replace something else for God. So God's gift to us, the law, the prophets, and Jesus. Jesus is God's gift to us because in Jesus, God reveals the fullness of God's purposes in human life. We say that Jesus is both human and divine. And what we mean by that is that in Jesus' humanity, God's divinity is fully revealed. And that by being human ourselves, we, by relationship with Jesus, share also in God's divinity. 
The glory of God is revealed perfectly in the face of Jesus, which shines like the sun on the top of the mountain. The glory of God is revealed imperfectly in us. But the story of us is the next gift that God gives to us. Because Moses went up the mountain alone. He went into the cloud by himself. The Israelites were encamped at the base of of Mount Sinai, and Moses went up to receive the law, and everybody else was forbidden to even approach the mountain. He was by himself in the cloud. Elijah, when he survived the earthquake and the hurricane in the cave on the mountain, and he heard the still, small voice of God speaking to him, he was alone. He was by himself. When Jesus goes up to the mountain to reveal God's glory, he takes his disciples with him. He takes us with him. But not all of us. He takes three. The last couple of weeks, or in the last month or so, Chris and I have been talking a lot about what it means to be a disciple. And as a result, we've been hearing back from some of you about your thoughts and experiences about that, and I want to share with you a couple of things that I've heard. One is, I've heard some parishioners say, well, I didn't think that I could be a disciple because I thought that the disciples were a fixed number, the 12 disciples that are named in the Gospels. That's who the disciples are, and and therefore that's like a closed category. You know, there's nine justices on the Supreme Court, and there's 12 disciples, and there can be no more. Well, that's not true. In the Gospels, it says that Jesus had many disciples, hundreds, unnumbered disciples. A multitude followed him and were his disciples. Twelve are named. But only three go up the mountain with him. Only three are there to share in the secret that he reveals to them, which is the fullness of God's glory. So discipleship is God's gift to us to follow in the way of Jesus that leads to the glory of God. But it's not an easy path, which is why all these experiences happen on the mountaintop. Right? It's not easy to get up the mountain. I don't care which mountain you're talking about or how you're getting there, maybe except by ski lift. Otherwise, getting up the mountain requires effort. It's difficult. And not everybody's going to go there, which is a reflection of another thing that we've heard from some of you since we started talking about being a disciple, which is uh, some of you have said to me, well, I guess I feel like I can't be a disciple because I'm not really sure I have what it takes. I don't think I can live up to the invitation to be that kind of person. And I'm here to tell you today, if you feel that way, that is your number one qualification for being a disciple. As many as there are disciples, there are ways to stumble and fall. And stumbling and falling is the characteristic of discipleship. We don't often hear that in our educational systems or in the ways that we get trained up to be people. We hear a lot about success as a mark of discipleship or being a good student, which is what a disciple is. Last week, Chris shared a story about his anxiety about success and failure as a student and how it 
uh, contributed to his procrastination as a student. That he thought, well, if I just don't do the assignment, then I can't fail. I, in the twisted logic of the anxious mind, if I, and I could relate. When he told that story, I thought, yeah, I can remember experiences like that. But when I read this story from today's gospel and I see how Peter responds to this vision of Jesus and Moses and Elijah, I really see myself stumbling and falling in my discipleship. And here's how. Peter sees his lawgiver, his prophet, and his Messiah. And he says, oh, it's so good of you to be here. Let me build three dwellings, one for each of you. It's presented as hospitality. But what I think it really is, is an attempt to capture, contain, and possess the teacher in the hopes that the teacher will no longer ask anything of the student. I experience this myself in my relationships with my teachers. I flatter them. I want them to like me. I bring them gifts in the hope of convincing them that I might not have to do all the work that they're asking me to do. I'm building dwellings for my teachers so that they won't ask me to do more. I didn't realize that until I read this passage this week and I saw myself in Peter. How can I avoid doing what the teacher is asking me to do? I'll build him a nice little house. The teacher is asking us to do more than we think is possible, but in revealing God's glory, the teacher is showing us that it is possible. And when the disciples fall down, on their faces and are filled with fear, the teacher says, get up, don't be afraid. We have to keep going. As many of you know, and if you don't know, you have not been within the range of my voice in the last three years, I am a student of a form of Brazilian martial art called capoeira. The game of capoeira, it's called a game, and they refer to it as play when they talk about it. The game of capoeira is played in a group of people that stand in a ring, a circle. In the Brazilian language, it's called a roda, which means a wheel. And two players enter the roda, and they exchange uh, attacks and defenses, the purpose of which is to try to confuse and control your opponent so that finally, at last, you can position your body in relation to theirs so that you can make a certain kind of move that will put them on the ground. So uh, it's very demanding, physically, but also emotionally and psychologically, because you have to be able to read your opponent and play along and try not to get caught at the same time that you're trying to catch them. And it's frightening to enter the Hada, because you might get hurt. The people that I play with are all friends, and we help each other out, and we try to encourage each other, and nobody's out to get anybody else. But arms and legs and hands and feet are flying around, and it's possible to get hurt. So it's frightening to enter the Hoda. I think back on a time when it was my turn to enter the game, and to, when you enter the game, you have to interrupt the players that are already playing and indicate that one of them has to step out and you're going to take over playing the other player. So even as you enter, you're stepping into the middle of 
all this activity. And I turned to a, a mestre who was standing by me, a, a, you know, a master teacher, and I, I put my fist on my chest and I said, I'm scared. And he said, I thought it would help if I just admitted that, like maybe he would excuse me, you know? <laughs> he said, don't be scared. Just do your best. But remember to duck. <laughs> Which is good advice in the hall there, because sometimes you forget. Recently, it's been my experience that I've been playing long enough that I've begun to play against other players that are much more advanced than I am, and they've been holding back less. So I've been blessed with the experience of getting knocked down a lot more lately. And I have one teacher in particular who, when that happens to me or anybody else, shouts from the edge of the halda, get up! It's what you need to hear when you've been knocked to the ground and you're confused and alarmed and frightened and you don't know where your opponent is or what they're about to do next. And your instinct is just to want to curl up into a ball and lie there. And the voice from out of all the noise and confusion and activity around you shouts, get up! You have to keep going. The game is not over. We are about to embark on the season of Lent. Lent is a concentrated period of discipleship, of discipline in the way of Jesus. And each of us is invited to imagine what practice we might undertake between Ash Wednesday and Easter Saturday so that we might more adequately discipline ourselves in the way of Jesus. And it's not easy. It's like climbing a mountain. It's going to ask something of us. And we might wish to build a dwelling for Jesus in hopes that he would excuse us from following him. Or we might wish to procrastinate and avoid doing the work that he gives us to do in the hopes that by avoiding it, we just can't fail at it. But rather, he shows us what's possible by revealing the face of God's glory in his face, shining like the sun, and invites us to follow him. And in response to our fear and anxiety, he calls to us and says, don't be afraid, get up, the game's not over, we have to keep going. Amen. <laughs>